Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we get started with this episode, I wanted to let you know how you can help Spiked. Spiked is free. All our articles, essays, and podcasts are free to access, and we want to keep it that way so that our ideas reach as wide an audience as possible. And you can help us to do that by making a donation. Times are tough for everyone right now, given everything that is going on in the world. But if you feel you can make a donation, please do. A one-off donation is great and always hugely appreciated, but a regular donation is even better and can really help us to carry on doing what we're doing. Even £5 a month can make a huge difference to our work. So if you like what we do, please consider making a donation today. To do so, just go to www.spiked-online.com and press the big red donate button. That's www.spiked-online.com and press the big red donate button. Now on with the show. The parties have more or less ceased to function, Mm -hmm. and they are now basically brand labels. And the only people really committed to them are the actual politicians themselves, people who want appointments, and uh, their allies in the media and consulting agencies who uh, sell candidates to the public. So it's gone from a participatory political system to one which is really, it's, it's like consumer capitalism, you know, that is there's this product. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Michael Lind. Michael is an American academic and commentator. He has worked at numerous publications, including The National Interest, Harper's Magazine, and The New Republic. He was co-founder of the New America Foundation, a think tank based in Washington, D.C., and he is currently a professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He is author of numerous books, including The Next American Nation, What Lincoln Believed, and The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite. That book is a brilliant broadside against the technocratic establishment and an argument for trusting people with greater democratic choice and control. I caught up with Michael to dig down into the ideas in The New Class War. The first thing I want to ask you about is the greatest threat to Western democracy, because if you were to ask the average liberal, or if you were to go to a dinner party somewhere in London or New York and ask people what they thought was the greatest threat to Western democracy, they'd probably say Trump, they might say Brexit, they might say neo-fascism. But you have argued that the greatest threat to Western democracy actually comes from the well-educated, well-mannered, and well-funded centrist neoliberal political class that we have lived under for a period of time. That would strike some people as a surprising answer. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, my argument in my book, uh, The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite, is that Western societies at this point, although formally democratic, are actually oligarchic in structure. And the oligarchy is what James Burnham in the mid-20th century called the managerial class, which he and I define broadly to include uh, college-educated elites in the uh, public service and in the nonprofit sector, as well as in the private sector, like corporate executives. This is a class which in the United States, if you define it most broadly as people with undergraduate bachelor's degrees 
It's no more than 30% of the population. If you define it a bit more accurately, postgraduate and professional degrees, that's about 10% of the population. So you have 10% of the population supplies the uh, leadership in the business sector, in journalism, in government, in the nonprofit sector, almost exclusively. And I also argue that the agenda and the uh, policies of Western democracies reflect the class interests of this group, whether it means access to you know cheap foreign labor or low-wage immigrant labor. It reflects their values, which tend to be moderately libertarian on social issues. So in that sense, we have not had democracy in a substantive form for several generations. Uh, I define democracy differently from most of the people who talk about liberal democracy. I don't like that term liberal democracy because the premise is it's all very procedural. It's all formal. That is, you have free elections and minorities are not persecuted. But you can still have a very oligarchic society if you have free elections and respect basic civil rights because most of democracy is about policies. It's not about rights. And I argue in the middle of the 20th century, in all of the Western democracies, you had a kind of a substantive democracy. I call it democratic pluralism, in which the power of this managerial elite, which already existed by the, the 1945, was counterbalanced by working class organizations like uh, trade unions and powerful churches and also powerful local political machines. And as those have eroded, then by default, this uh, college-educated elite, not by conspiracy, it's just the countervailing forces have eroded. They've kind of dominated the entire system. I think that's a really interesting point. So how would you describe the dynamic behind the way in which this managerial elite has been able to dominate politics for a period of time? As you say, it's not so much a conspiracy. This is not something they've plotted behind closed doors and are finally seizing power. But it comes from the corrosion of previously existing institutions, particularly working class institutions, social institutions, institutions through which people organized themselves and expressed uh, an element of their power and their sense of political agency. So do you think this managerial class has been able to assume this dominant role largely by default because of the shifts that have taken place in Anglo-American societies over the past 50 years or so? Yes, I, I think it is by uh, default, and it's in, to different degrees, it's in continental European societies as well. As I say, you know, there was no conspiracy with beat poets like Allen Ginsberg getting together with Mount Pelerin Society libertarian economists like Milton Friedman in 1950 and deciding to move towards a socially liberal, economically libertarian system. In the three realms of government, the economy and the culture broadly defined. You had three separate battles, and what I call the uh, overclass, the managerial elite, won all three battles. So in the government, you see an increasing shift of decision-making power away from legislatures to executives and to judiciaries, and particularly in the case of Europe, with the European Union, to transnational decision-making bodies. And this essentially is a shift of class power, because if you're working class, you're far more likely to influence your legislator, especially one in a lower house of the, the legislature, than you are a federal judge or a, a transnational tribunal. So in, in the realm of the economy, the decline of the unions is, is the major cause of the shift of power to the managerial class. And uh, that was partly as a result of legal changes backed by employers, but partly was a result of offshoring because you can simply avoid unionization if you shut down unionized factories in North America, Europe, and move them to authoritarian states like China with unfree labor. In the third area of the culture, the churches and synagogues were much more powerful in the 1950s and 60s than they are now, and they may have abused that power in some sense, but they used the threat of boycott to censor content in the media and education that offended their values. And largely as a result of long-term secularization, their power has faded. So the assumption of really unchecked power in all three realms of government, economy, and the culture 
by this uh, very small overclass with advanced educational credentials has resulted more from the weakening of their opponents than from any kind of conscious power grab on their part. I want to come back in a moment to the question of the kind of slow motion expulsion of of working class people from decision-making institutions and and decision-making processes over over the past few decades. I want to come back to that in a bit of depth, but just on the issue of democracy, I think it's one of the most striking things you say, and, and some of us in the UK have been saying something similar, is that not all forms of contemporary populism are necessarily positive, and they're not necessarily something you would want to get excited about. But you argue that the greatest threat to democracy does not actually come from populist demagogues, but in in many senses, it comes from the response to populism by this managerial elite. So firstly, could you describe what you understand populism to represent at the moment, and then why you think the pushback against it poses a larger threat to democracy than populism itself? Well, in the new class war, I argue that populism of the sort that produced Donald Trump and Brexit and, and many populist parties in Europe is a predictable reaction. It's a counter-revolution from below, particularly but not exclusively of the uh, native white working class, but, but not just native and white. If you look at the UK, about a third of non-white voters supported Brexit. Mm-hmm. So this group used to have its greatest hold in the center-left parties like Labour in Britain, like the Democrats, between Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson. They were driven out of these center-left parties by socially liberal upper-middle-class professionals who tended to be somewhat economically free market oriented, the parties of the right did not pick them up. And so in the U.S., they've been floating between the two parties ever since uh, Ross Perot in the 1990s. And and Trump's, the, the reason he won the nomination and then the election was that he appealed to them. Having said that, you know, a lot of the grievances that are, are channeled by uh, populist demagogues, and they are demagogues, they're, you know, outsiders who pose as tribunes of the people who are disenfranchised. They're legitimate grievances, but because the demagogues tend to be anti-system, they can protest against this uh, technocratic, neoliberal, oligarchic establishment. But in my view, it's, it's very unlikely they can reform it by creating you know, a new disciplined leadership group, which is what you need, because you're going to have a managerial society. It just depends on whether the managers have to share power with representatives of the working class or not. And what's more, if you look at countries in Latin America, if you look at the American South, which was the home of the demagogic populists for most of American history, the oligarchs usually win. They have almost all of the educated people, all of the civil servants, all of the executives, all of the intellectuals. The populists can come in, win a few elections, but either they're neutralized by the establishment or they uh, are simply co-opted. So I see uh, populism kind of as, as a symptom of the underlying disease of technocratic oligarchy. It's not a cure. Mm. You mentioned that the role of the white working class, not single-handedly, but in playing a relatively significant part in the populist revolts that we've seen and in in the pushback in what you describe as the predictable pushback against the overarching power of the technocratic managerial elites. That's very pronounced in the UK. It's a similar situation in America too. You will know, of course, that if you talk about the white working classes, you can sometimes find yourself being accused of racism or victimology and sometimes playing an alternative role that is played by the kind of technocratic upper-class identitarians in terms of emphasizing the victim status of a particular group, in this case the white working class, in order to make a political point. How, how do you counter those arguments? Are, are you arguing that the white working classes had been neglected and this is a cry for recognition, or do you think there's something a bit more profound in what they have done? To begin with, I I think it's better to talk about the working class Mm. rather than the white working class, because as I say, it's multiracial, the support for these uh, populist movements. If you look at the U.S., uh, nearly a third of Latino voters voted for Donald Trump. 
So the racial polarization we hear so much about in the U.S. context, really the only group that's terribly polarized is African-Americans. They vote 90% or so for the Democratic Party. Asian-Americans and Hispanic-Americans are more divided, and they prefer the Democrats, but, but it's not overwhelming. The founding mythology of the technocratic neoliberal establishments on both sides of the Atlantic, there are two. One is World War II, portrayed as a battle solely against racism and, and anti-Semitism on the part of the Nazis. The other founding myth is the civil rights revolution of the 1960s and 70s. And this makes sense because the electoral success of the uh, center-left parties, who are the dominant parties in at this point, not only in the media and the academy, in government, but also increasingly in the private sector, even though they still lose some elections. But they are an alliance of a very affluent, highly educated native whites in a small number of big global cities, hub cities, I call them in the book, with native minorities and also uh, immigrant diasporas. So these groups have nothing in common economically or socially, and the only glue holding this center-left coalition together is anti-racism. So, so naturally, you know, anyone who disagrees with that coalition, by definition, is going to be smeared as a racist or a Nazi. I mean, they're real racists and real Nazis, but they're declining in numbering, and they're negligible, and you can't attribute most populism to them. I want to ask you about the content of this new class war. One of the very important insights made in your book and in, in what you've been writing and saying over the past couple of years is about the fact that this is not simply an economic clash. This is not just an economic question, because I find that when some technocratic leftists talk about the kind of left behind, even if they have a, an element of sympathy for some of these communities, even if they express sympathy for the for the Rust Belt supporters of Trump or the supposedly left behind communities in the UK who voted for Brexit and then subsequently for Boris Johnson, even when they are sympathetic, they tend to express that in narrowly economic terms. They will say that these people felt economically left out. They were They felt let down by globalization and so on. Undoubtedly, there is truth to the continued existence of economic tensions and economic disparities, but there's something more to it too as, as well, isn't there? There's a deeper and in some ways more important cultural, social question as part of this new class war. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. The, uh, there's a moral difference that you can document. In, in my book, I point out that in the United States, working class people are more likely to describe children as a joy, and upper middle class professionals are more likely to describe them as a burden. And it's kind of hard to separate the culture and the economics because the morality of the college-educated professional elite to which I belong is shaped by its career pattern. That is, you go to a university, preferably a prestigious one, usually outside of the town or county or region that you were born in. You then may travel thousands of miles you know, to a major city to pursue your career, and you hardly ever see anyone else in your family again, your parents, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins. And that's necessary if you want to flourish in Wall Street or Hollywood or Washington, D.C. or you know London, as the case may be. If you're a working class person, most of the jobs that you will end up having are available everywhere, the ones that are not manufacturing jobs that have been outsourced. Uh, so there's really no reason for you to leave where you were born. And one of the things I point out in the new class war is geographic mobility is very low on the part of working class majorities. And this is true in Europe and the UK as well as the US. In the US, the average American lives 18 miles from her mother. And they use women because they live longer. And this comes as a great shock to uh, college-educated people when I point this out, because very few college-educated professionals live in the same town they grew up in. So there's a, a kind of communitarian value system, which I would argue is the normal human value system through most of history, and this extremely libertarian, meritocratic, geographically nomadic value system. This is a kind of peculiar mutation limited to a specialized kind of managerial capitalist elite. Mm. That's very interesting. And, and that kind of taps into 
some of the ideas that have been developed in the UK as well over the past few years, you know, David Goodhart's idea of the somewheres versus the anywheres and maybe a few in-betweeners who are somewhere in the middle. And that distinction between a class that is increasingly defined by its global nature and its connected nature and the fact that it doesn't necessarily stay attached to the community from which it comes. And then the other class, largely the working class, who still do have those local attachments, family attachments, community attachments, for whom these are incredibly important things. But I wonder if you could just describe what you think are the other cultural divides between these two classes in terms of the approach to identity politics or the approach to questions of social liberalism? Do you see huge divides over some of those fundamental questions of culture and society in, in relation to this class war? Well, I think the biggest divide has to do with views of tradition. That is, uh, if you're a working class person, you want to pass on the cultural traditions that you were raised in, be they mm. religious, a sense of local, and this is bound up in your identity to the extent that you don't have a separate identity of yourself, apart from, in my case, I'm a fifth generation native of, of Texas, right? You, you uh, Protestant, Christian, whatever, you know, this is your identity. This is quite alien to the mentality of the, of the Western overclass. Your identity is your achieved identity. Right, you're a graduate of a particular university. You pursue a particular profession. You're proud of your education. You're proud of your economic function, your profession. But you would never say, "Well, I'm proud of my hometown," or "I'm proud of my my region," or, or the place I was born in. That's just hopelessly vulgar and déclassé. So, I, I, again, I think that there's another aspect to this. What you find is a convergence of the desire for constant creativity on the part of the intelligentsia with the desire for constant novelty on the part of capitalism, right? That is, both of these groups, for different reasons, are trying to overthrow everything that existed before yesterday, mm. right? And so you can even divide the intelligentsia among social scientists and artists and creative people. When it comes to art, our view of the arts comes from early 19th century German Romanticism, where the arts, instead of being traditions passed on by craftsmen, you have the original genius who overthrows everything done before, comes up with something uniquely individual. In social science, the premise is that society is a subject of scientific study like physics, and just as you wouldn't use 1950s physics, why would you use 1950s politics or economics. You know, you make a name as a social scientist by overthrowing everything done before last week. And of course, if, if you're a corporation, everything has to be new and improved and, you know, 2.0 and 3.0. So you have what to my mind is an ultimately unsustainable strategy mm -hmm. by an elite which pretty much wants to overthrow all existing cultural traditions as though they were consumer products and being replaced by the product line. I don't think that's sustainable. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. It's now reached a situation where even the idea of sex, biological sex and gender itself, is seen as a pesky tradition that can be overthrown. And it's one of the interesting divides in the UK context, at least, and maybe it's similar in the US, is between this technocratic class, which sees these things as changeable and insignificant and something you can play around with and ordinary people who tend to have a strong attachment to those ideas and the values that come with them like motherhood and fatherhood and family and so on one thing i wanted to ask you just to dig down a bit more into the expulsion of working class people from decision making and democracy and and questions of power because in the british context it strikes me there's almost been a triple whammy assault on the standing of working class communities. So 
there was the economic assault and, and the dismantling, a relatively conscious dismantling in some instances of trade unions, the institutions through which working people uh, express their power, particularly in the Thatcher era where there was a almost open warfare against trade unionism. Then there is this kind of assault on the cultural values of working class communities, which are increasingly depicted as unhealthy, problematic, inappropriate, racist, and so on. And then more recently, there has been a calling into question of the fundamental democratic rights of working communities, particularly through the technocratic pushback against Brexit, which, you know, there was a period of time when it looked possible that the vote for Brexit, 17.4 million votes, could possibly be undone and thrown into the dustbin of history. So it strikes me there's been this kind of triple assault on the nature and the standing and the, the, the dignity of working class people. I wonder if, it's, if there has been a similar process in the United States context. Yeah, the details differ, but I think it's fairly similar both in the UK and US and, and also in continental Europe. And the decline of the trade unions in economics and of the churches in uh, the culture I've already mentioned, mm. I think you, you can't overlook the importance of the dissolution of the parties as mass membership organizations with local chapters. When I was young in the U.S., the Democratic Party and the Republican Party were still federations of local urban and county parties who selected the people above them. Uh, these were real organizations and ideas and interests and communication flowed up from the grassroots to Washington, D.C., but also down. You know, leaders could change the opinions through trusted local party officials. In the United States, the uh, upper middle class, the uh, educated elite, led an uh, assault on that, replacing the party's choice of politicians, local parties, with primaries. And that's the system that we've seen today. And the primary system is extremely skewed in class terms because the working class is much less likely to participate in primaries and caucuses in the United States than highly motivated, ideologically zealous, college-educated professionals, whether they're on the right or the left. This is, skews the Republican Party towards the upper middle class as much as the uh, Democratic Party. It's somewhat different in Britain and different countries, but in all of these countries, as the late Andrew Mayer pointed out, the, the parties have more or less ceased to function, mm -hmm. and they are now basically brand labels, and the only people really committed to them are the actual politicians themselves, people who want appointments, and uh, their allies in the media and consulting agencies who uh, sell candidates to the public. So it's gone from a participatory political system to one which is really it's it's like consumer capitalism, you know, mm. that is there's this product and it's sold and they try to build up tribal loyalty the way you are to a you know a, a Mac user rather than a Microsoft user. And I think this explains why much of the working class and not just the white working class has dropped out of politics. You know, the, the local organizations where they could make a difference no longer exist. Politics is something they see on TV and either they don't vote or now and then they cast a protest vote. That's a very important point about the hollowing out of political parties over recent decades. And I think a striking example is the Labour Party in the UK, because the Labour Party, with some justification, presents itself as one of the largest membership organisations in Western Europe at the moment, because it has a very significant number of members, I think upwards of 500,000. But that can be very deceptive because a lot of these are relatively new members. They joined when it became easier to join financially and politically. And the class makeup of this membership is incredibly striking. I mean, what's really striking about the Labour Party in the UK is that under Jeremy Corbyn, the, the membership became even more upper middle class than it had been under Tony Blair. And Tony Blair was, of course, incredibly important in terms of representing the shift of Labour from being a working class party towards being something new and different. So I think one of the striking things, and you're right to say that this applies to continental Europe too, one of the striking things I think has been the colonisation of 
supposedly left parties or parties that were founded at least in some fashion to represent working class opinion and working class concerns. I think one of the striking things almost across the West in recent decades has been the colonization of those parties by this professional class and by these graduates and upper middle classes. Do you think there is any possibility of salvaging those parties and returning them to something of their original aim? Or do you think they are lost causes and something else has to be done? Well, let me say that, you know, this problem is nothing new. It goes all the way back to the 19th century. The, the Socialist Party of Marx and Engels was mostly upper middle class and, and rich people. They had very few workers in it, as I understand it. The same is true for the Fabian Socialists in Britain. The progressives in the United States tended to be uh, college-educated, professional class elites. So there was always that tension on the left between these uh, elite reformers who claimed to speak on behalf of the workers and the actual working organizations led by uh, trade unions, uh, whose members were often quite socially conservative and, and familist and very patriotic. And as I say, is I think really the decline of the unions is, is the, the key, because not only did the unions counterbalance this elite in the polity as a whole, but they also kept them in check within the center-left party. And then they just, the upper-middle-class social reformers, the good government people, or the goo-goos, as they were called derisively by the urban political machines in the U.S., they just took over from the 1970s, 80s to this point. I think at, at this stage, you cannot reconstruct working-class power mm. without some kind of... Uh, tripartite corporatist arrangement at the national level where you have formalized bargaining of some sort once again between organized labor and and organized employers brokered by the government. I think that's just necessary. This can only be done at the level of the nation state. It can't be done at the level of the European Union, much less the level of the United Nations. And at this point, I think that these elite college-educated reformers on the left their cosmopolitanism, and I use this in the Stoic sense, this is not anti-Semitic, but their cosmopolitanism, their globalism, is a much deeper part of their identity and their worldview than their commitment to working class people. So you get this alliance of this kind of left cosmopolitanism, which you know believes in the workers of the world transcending borders, and this utilitarian capitalist version where if you maximize the hedonic well-being of workers abroad by transferring factory jobs to them, and that out, outweighs the loss to the factory workers within Britain or within the UK. So at this point, I really see zero chance that parties of the left captured by this uh, kind of open borders, post-national, really more moderately libertarian elite can engage in this kind of national corporatist tripartite Reconstruction. I use corporatist in, in the older sense of employer labor bargaining, not in the sense of being right in, in beholden to corporations. That's a, a rich vein for discussion in terms of the shift towards a kind of new form of cosmopolitanism, because I think there's been an important shift away from internationalism towards globalism, from from a left that was concerned with the commonality of, of workers' interests, for example, and the argument that these interests transcended borders, even if necessarily campaigns for greater rights would take place within borders, we've seen a shift away from that worldview towards one which is much more globalist or at least pseudo-cosmopolitanism, which seems to be a worldview that is not so much about how to empower working people or to encourage them to recognize the interests they share with other working people, but is almost an attempt to escape national territory and all the burdensome stuff that goes along with that, which is the question of the working classes, the question of democracy, the fact that democracy, as we currently understand it, can only really take place within a national territory in which people have certain rights and responsibilities and so on. So to what extent do you think the drift of the left towards a, a more global mindset is energized by not these kind of high-minded internationalist claims that they make, but rather by a desire to escape national electorates and national responsibilities? 
most central left ideology at this point reflects the collective class interest of this group. You know, they're the ones who whose two worker household lifestyle depends on servants. Mm-hmm. We, know, we don't like talking about the servant question in the 20th century, but you cannot have both parents of young children working unless there's someone raising the kids. And the preferred uh, someone is not a, a very expensive, you know, au pair like Nanny Mary Poppins. It's a, an exploited lower class woman from a, a non-Western country or a third world country. So, you know, the immigration views of this elite, it, I mean, it literally reflects their family structure and their, their career paths. You know, their, their support for free trade and globalization, they portray in idealistic terms. It's because they, the lucrative professions in the West are connected either directly or indirectly to large-scale multinational corporations, you know, which benefit from access to labor markets and access to uh, foreign consumers. And finally, because the overclass is clustered in a fairly small number of cities, sometimes one city like London and the UK, and, and they've moved there in their youth if they were not born and raised there, think, oh, I'm a Londoner, I'm a New Yorker, what do I have to do with these yahoos living in the rest of this backward country? I've been told this before by college-educated people in New York and San Francisco. Mm. We should just see, we should have, you know, have our own city-state like Singapore. So I think this is a secession by the elite, and it's a way of maximizing their own interests while minimizing their obligations. And indeed, cosmopolitanism allows them to deny any special obligation towards fellow citizens in a particular country, as opposed to humanity in general. I think that's absolutely right. I think uh, the city-state question or the city-state instinct that might exist among some of these people is is also very pronounced in London and Paris. You know, in London, for example, there was you know open, serious discussion about London possibly becoming its own entity after the Brexit vote because a majority of Londoners voted to remain, whereas many other parts of England and Wales in particular voted to leave. And then I think I've always thought that the Gilets jaunes revolt in France represented a very clear divide that has has emerged between Paris, which is the centre of pretty much everything in France, and, you know, incredibly neglected other parts of the country who feel they are overtaxed, undermined and demeaned constantly. But you made a point there about the role of immigration in this. And I wanted to ask you about that, because I think the immigration question or, or attitudes towards immigration are one of the most striking things amongst this new managerial class. And I, it seems to me that they present themselves often in a kind of um, virtue signaling way as being incredibly in favor of immigrants, unlike the rest of society, which is racist and skeptical and so on. But it does strike me that they benefit from immigration both economically, because it provides them with cheap labor that allows them, as you say, to carry on doing what they're doing, but also culturally. And you've talked about the asymmetrical multiculturalism that we currently have in in some of our societies, in which the appreciation of immigrants and immigrant culture often goes hand in hand with an elite contempt or an elite disdain for the culture and traditions of native communities and working class communities and so on. So do you think there's an element where this new technocratic class is a beneficiary both economically and also politically from their promotion of the ideology of immigration or open borders and, and so on? Yes, well, let, let me say that the phrase asymmetric multiculturalism comes from uh, Eric Kaufman. It's, it's a brilliant uh, phrase, pointing out that if you're part of the educated elite in the West, you're supposed to uh, deride your own country's culture and traditions, but praise those of various immigrant diasporas and, and foreign countries. So it's a weird kind of inverted patriotism or, or inverted nativism. Mm. Look, the economics of this are apparent. The people who employ nannies to raise their children because they want to have two earner households tend to be affluent professionals. As I point out in my book, The New Class War, an estimated 90% or so of the households in New York that employ nannies pay them off the books. Mm. 
right? So if you're a great champion of immigrants coming to the United States, how much are you paying your gardener? How much are you paying your pool boy? How much are you paying your nanny and your maid? So this is just blatant hypocrisy. And in terms of cosmopolitan tastes, that just shows the extent to which this group is becoming an aristocracy, because the aristocracies in the past, their form of status signaling was foreign fashions. I mean, if you read <laughs> history, it was not pride in sharing the same culture as the local peasants in the Shire by any means, Yeah. right? If you were an 18th century British gentleman, you built this mansion in the form of a Palladian Italian villa, and you uh, wore French fashions, you know, and you danced a Polish quadrille. So the elites have always used the consumption of foreign fashions. Again, economics and culture are hard to distinguish. If, if you're the you know, tenant farmers on the Downton Abbey estate, keeping up with the latest fashion on the continent is, was not an option. You're going to dress and dance and sing and amuse yourself the way your parents and grandparents did. No, I think that's, that's very useful. And, and I, I go to Manhattan often and I, I see this thing that you don't actually see in London, but it's incredibly striking where you will see black women and Hispanic women looking after white children. And you see it everywhere. I mean, you cannot walk through Manhattan without encountering this site. And it's an incredibly striking illustration of the role that these usually low paid women, often immigrant women, play in the lives of the managerial elites who then, of course, pose as being incredibly open-minded on immigration questions and incredibly multicultural and so on. I want to move on slightly to the question of Trump. Now, you will know from personal experience that anyone who raises questions of the pushback against populism or the problematic role that the managerial elites play in contemporary politics, often those people will be caricatured as Trumpists and make America great again type of people. And of course, you have criticized Trump and so on. It, would it be right to say that your, your general view on this question is that Trump is a problematic political figure, but anti-Trumpism in terms of the sometimes contemptuous pushback that comes from the technocratic elites is worse than Trumpism. Well, yeah, and I've suffered from this in the New Yorker and the New York Times book review of the new class war. There was an attempt made to smear me not only as a white nationalist, but also as a Trump supporter for ridiculing the idea, which deserves to be ridiculed, that Trump and Boris Johnson and, and uh, Nigel Farage and others are conscious neo-Nazis attempting to bring I don't know, stormtroopers to power. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It ought to be laughed at. It should be laughed to death. Having said that, I'm not a supporter of Trumpism, you know, in, in terms of this anti-establishment populism. I defend the voters as having legitimate interests, but they will not be served well in general by these sorts of populist candidates. I would exempt Johnson. Hmm. Johnson is a member of the establishment who wants to address some of these grievances by reform from within. And I think that's the route that you have to go in advanced managerial societies. Trump is a fairly familiar type from American history. And, and you have to think of him in terms of American history, not Weimar and Nazi Germany. That's ridiculous. Wherever you've had very closed nepotistic political elites in regions of the U.S., you got these outsider populists in the, in the South between the Civil War and the Civil Rights Revolution. Not only all African Americans, but the lower half of the white population was disfranchised effectively by poll taxes and literacy tests, things like that. And so you had this upper middle class business elite ran the states in the South, including my native Texas. So you got these very colorful demagogues like Huey Long. In uh, Boston, the old uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestant elite froze the Irish out throughout the 19th and early 20th century. And the inevitable nemesis to that was Mayor Michael Curley, who actually became governor of Massachusetts, spent time in prison. <laughs> <laughs> and, and his policy essentially was 
to screw the wasps, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants on behalf of the Boston Irish. So you can somewhat, you know, sometimes you can sympathize with the people they represent. Mm. But these characters like Curly and Huey Long, inevitably, even if they win some elections, they don't reform the system. They can do a few good things. They can build hospitals. They, you know, they can build universities for their people. But usually these, these administrations end in competence and chaos and nepotism. And just a few days ago, President Trump announced his counsel to reopen America, headed by his daughter, Ivanka, and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, which is typical of nepotistic populism. Uh, this was ridiculed so much that, that he withdrew their names. <laughs> so, you know, one can be anti-anti-Trump without being pro-Trump or anti-Trump. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. In relation to Trump, one of the things that you've talked about in terms of the response to him from these elites is the idea that there's a brown scare around Trump, a brown in terms of brown shirts from Nazi history. And I think actually that has struck me. I mean, it, it seems to have faded out to a certain extent, but there was a period of time a couple of years ago where, you know, I, I remember when Trump was coming to the UK and you would see placards and banners and newspaper articles openly comparing him with Hitler and Mussolini, openly calling him a modern-day Nazi and, and America as a, as a fascist republic. We saw similar responses to the vote for Brexit, which you know people like Prince Charles and the Archbishop of Canterbury refer to as having echoes of the 1930s. I think uh, challenging that brown scare, is, as you refer to it, is actually incredibly important for two reasons. Firstly, because it mystifies the present and it presents what are, are actually interesting political developments. It just writes them off as this irrational, hysterical, Nazi-style phenomenon. But also it demeans the past and it, it hollows out the memory of uh, the Nazi experience and the Holocaust experience in particular it demeans that through comparison with modern day events. So I, I do think challenging the notion that, the, you know, as you said earlier on, of course, there are neo-Nazis. And of course, there are far right groups. There always have been and, and there will be for, for some time to come. But I think it's incredibly important to challenge that depiction of contemporary events because of what it does to history and the dangerous impact it has on contemporary politics. Well, that's right. The term brown scare was coined by liberal and left-wing uh, academics in the U.S. Uh, to describe the kind of hysteria they already saw in the 40s and 50s and 60s, where liberals would claim that a very heterogeneous group of right-wingers, Protestant fundamentalists, isolationists, libertarians, were part of this you know, potential Third Reich that would take over America. So, so this goes back you know, almost 70 years. And the center-left intelligentsia, for obvious reason, remembers red scares, but they don't remember these hysterical brown scares, which generally happen whenever a Republican is in the White House, starting with Eisenhower and, and, and with uh, Nixon and Reagan. So, look, there, there are two aspects to this, one historical and one psychological. The historical aspect of this is that the mind of educated people in the West has been rotted by too many public television documentaries about the rise of the Third Reich. Mm -hmm. I, I really am convinced, speaking of American intellectuals, the vast majority of them know more about Hitler and Himmler and Goebbels and, you know, Weimar inflation than they actually know about American history. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm serious about this. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. They, they couldn't tell you the details of the New Deal or Herbert Hoover, but they know the history. It's like a sacred history almost of Germany from 1919 all the way up until 1945. And I think this is true in Britain and Europe as well. And weirdly enough, this was not true when I was much younger. The further we get away from the Holocaust and World War II and the rise of Hitler, the more obsessed this kind of Nazi imagery becomes. In, in Western culture. And so the first thing you have to do is 
you have to look for historical parallels outside of Germany in the 1920s and 1930s, right? The psychological element is, as I point out in the, in the new class war, there was the Frankfurt School, these immigrate Marxists, who introduced a long since discredited psychological theory about the Nazis coming to power because of status alienated white working class Germans. And as I point out, this is a total lie. Mm -hmm. The German working class voted for the two parties that opposed the Nazis, the Social Democrats, if they were on their left, and the Catholic Center Party, the, the more socially conservative working class. And the basis of the Nazis, to the embarrassment of our intelligentsia, was the German academic bureaucratic elite, along with, with some of the corporate elites. So by using this theory of the authoritarian personality, you can essentially describe anyone who deviates from the neoliberal consensus of Bush Republicans and Clinton Democrats as a, a mentally ill, emotionally maladjusted individual whose concerns are not to be taken seriously and who are brainwashed by demagogues into voting against, in the U.S., Bush Republicans and Clinton Democrats. It's a medicalization of dissent. Absolutely. I think, uh, and we've seen similar in the UK, this pathologization of anyone who questions any aspect of the preferred political outlook or cultural outlook of these technocratic elites, particularly in relation to Brexit, you know, the extent to which the vote for Brexit was described as a psychological outburst or a white lash, which was also terminology that was used in relation to the vote for Trump, just this attempt to denude it entirely of any consciousness or sensibility and to turn it into this rash, irrational reaction by ill-educated people. In relation to the Trump question. I think you're absolutely right to point out the the truth of the historical basis of the support for Hitler. And I think that's a point that cannot be made often enough. The other thing that strikes me about the people who push back against Trump in a an elitist, often quite a historical way is not only that they have this misunderstanding of history or this misuse of history, but also they often have a paranoid style, to borrow a phrase from 1950s America. I'm thinking in particular of the notion that Trump was put into the White House essentially by Russia, essentially by the Putin regime. I've always been struck by how much of a minority belief that is. That is something that's cleaved to almost as gospel by these largely unrepresented elites, but is not cleaved to as gospel by most other sections of society. So do you think there's an irrationalism in some of their response to political events that seem to them to be beyond their control? Oh, I think they've had a collective nervous breakdown. <laughs> and, and this took me by surprise. I think I'm a fairly astute observer of politics, but it really took me completely by surprise, Brendan, I thought that when Trump won in 2016, there would be an autopsy in the Democratic Party. They would say, well, the reason you lose elections is you don't get enough votes. The way you win is by getting some of the people who voted the other way over to your side. And we will see how we can persuade you know, some of these white working class swing voters in the Midwest that we're really their friends and we want them to be Democrats. No, instead you had people having group therapy sessions and nonprofits and universities and, and even, you know, Google and, you know, companies like that. And you had what is continuing to this day. It's not mass hysteria. It's class hysteria. Mm. It's hysteria of this elite, which is convinced that Vladimir Putin brainwashed high school educated white and black voters in the U.S. to install Donald Trump instead of Putin. It's absolutely insane. And because I don't like being wrong, and I didn't foresee this, you know, it's like, well, where did I go wrong? Uh, if you go back to the, there, there's historical precedent for this. If you go back to the French Revolution, for generations afterwards on the right, in that case, the establishment right, they insisted this was all a conspiracy by Freemasons and Jesuits or Jews or, you know, depending on the country. Of course, Stalin had the records, right? You know, any kind of resistance to communist tyranny. It was Leon Trotsky in Mexico City was, was you know, organizing it all, right? Mm. So, so I think that embattled elites, they naturally tend to have a kind of a, a primitive 
demonological view of the world yeah. that it's a vast conspiracy because to admit that ordinary people might actually resist their leadership and reject their values, this is psychologically unbearable for them. Okay, I have two, two more questions. The first one is it would be remiss of me if I didn't ask you about the current moment we're living in. So we're doing this podcast in a lockdown, an increasingly universal lockdown in response to a pretty severe health crisis. And one thing that I'm interested in thinking about is to what extent do you think this moment could unwind some of the developments of the past three or four or five years? Because it strikes me that there's a possibility it could either exacerbate the populist question. If you look at, for example, Italy and the growing number of Italians who feel completely let down by the European Union in response to this crisis. But it could swing the other way in terms of a return to some kind of trust in expertise or trust in that section of society, at least, that presents itself as being more expert than others. What's your prediction of the impact of the coronavirus crisis on some of these political developments we've been talking about? Well, I think this is this is a crippling blow to both technocratic neoliberalism and its its nemesis, right. demagogic populism, because it's quite clear that Trump, a demagogic populist, is not the chief magistrate you would want administering enormous federal bureaucracies at a time of crisis, and that's always been the weakness of these populist outsiders. Having said that, I think the lasting damage, particularly if this goes on until 2021 or 2022, and then we have a lost decade, I think that this may be the final nail in the coffin of neoliberal globalism, because it's very hard for me to see open borders, paying no attention to who's coming into your country, right? Not tracking immigrants and business travelers in an age of pandemics. That I can't see that reviving. I think all Western countries will try to shorten their medical supply chains, right? And reverse some of the offshoring to China. So in that sense, I don't see neoliberalism coming back. I don't think it necessarily means that the working class is empowered. Uh, I can see a return towards a kind of repressive feudalism where, and I think this is a real danger, where the professional class to which uh, I belong, you know, we're, we're doing our business through Zoom and through, you know, video conferencing and so on, and uh, paying people to deliver our groceries to our stores. What happens when the people who are keeping the infrastructure running start, you know, demanding much higher wages or unionizing or getting sick and simply refusing to go to work out of fear of getting sick? I think at that point, much of the nice, tolerant, liberal elite ensconced within their you know, nice apartments and spacious homes will say, send out the National Guard, send out the military, compel people to work in the fields. And, and I would not dismiss this as a possibility of essentially having the elite decide we need to have compulsory labor in the farms and in the factories and in the uh, distribution warehouses. Mm -hmm. So I think it go go either way. The other thing where there's going to be a huge class conflict in the remainder of this decade is over debt, because already in the United States with mass unemployment and people are not going to be able to pay their rent, they're not going to pay their credit cards and their car loans. That's going to be the, the question, you know, will the government side with the creditors and say this must all be paid one over time? creating societies of working class indentured servants who can never possibly pay down more than the interest on their credit cards, mm. right? Uh, or is there going to be some kind of debt relief? And, you know, before the pandemic, I would not have said this, but, but so, so I think these are going to be the two things. Labor does have some bargaining power in these essential services to demand higher wages and better working conditions. And, you're also going to get this class warfare between the creditors and debtors. Yeah. And I think in the UK context too, we're already seeing a more graphic illustration of some of the class divides that have been emerging over recent years. So we, we do still have the upper middle classes and public sector workers and the, the knowledge economy who are still able to work from home. That includes someone like me talking to someone like you. And then there are other sections of society who either have been completely decommissioned, and this is the largest decommissioning of 
working class people in the history of this country, or who are having to take risks and carry on working and delivering food and everything else to these people who are working from home. So when I walk through London now, it's a complete ghost town apart from gangs of Deliveroo guys on street corners mm -hmm. just waiting to deliver you know, fancy foodstuffs to the people who are at home making their podcasts or writing their articles or giving their lectures and so on. I think that the tensions inherent in that will probably become more explicit via the questions of debt and the organization of society and, and the respect that we accord to different people according to, to what they do and, and what their role is. My final question following on from that, this is too large a question, but let's see what we can do. Like me, you don't have much faith in, in the recovery of the traditionally left, traditionally worker-based parties like the Democratic Party or the Labour Party and various European parties too. So in terms of your, your rallying cry, I guess, of the necessity of the managerial class sharing democratic power with the working class and the necessity of new institutions via which working people might express their interests – what form do you see that taking going ahead or, or what form would you would you like to see it taking? Well, politically, I think it succeeds only if you have parties of the center right change their policies, realizing that they are now largely blue collar working class parties. They are no longer the party of the old bourgeoisie or the newer managerial elite and the old Reagan Thatcher ideology, that was for a different party system. Mm. And you, you see this happening slowly in the U.S. with uh, Senator Joss Hawley from uh, uh, Missouri with Florida Senator Marco Rubio. They've scandalized the old Reaganite donor class. Hawley is pushing for debt relief, for keeping people uh, furloughed instead of making them unemployed. Rubio has a push for uh, child tax credits being enlarged for one-earner families. And he also came out praising unions on the basis of Catholic social thoughts. So this is still a minority in the Republican Party, but I think that they're going to have to go that way mm. uh, if, if they want to be a majority party. But it, it, it's not simply a matter of policies. You have to have new structures. Mm. And I don't see the old adversarial trade unions of the British American kind coming back where uh, they were enterprise unions where you picketed one enterprise, one factory, one store, and then unionized it, you know, company by company. Where you find successful collective bargaining, you had sectoral level bargaining, where all of the firms in a sector banded together and they negotiated with uh, labor representatives for all of the workers in that sector. And there are examples of this in the United States. Some states have what are called wage boards where the government puts together employer representatives and labor representatives, and they will set the minimum wage and the minimum standards and benefits for all of the workers in that area, say fast food workers uh, in, in that particular state. So I think there needs to be some institutional creativity in the culture. I, I think you have to have some kind of government regulation of social media and of search engines and things like that. Otherwise, they will be skewed to represent this left libertarian worldview of the elites. And you can do it in a non-heavy-handed, repressive way, not through different shifting coalitions in the legislature doing it, but by having uh, fairness commissions, by having oversight commissions. We had that in the United States during the, the broadcast era. It was a casualty of libertarian deregulation in the 1990s, but you just bring together the major subcultures in society, and they can be liberal atheists, you know, conservative Christians, Jews, Muslims, Druids, whoever, and, and it's more of an advisory thing. It's not heavy-handed censorship, but so, so I think that there are, you know, structural ways to institutionalize power sharing between employers and workers, between media elites and, and ordinary people. And the toughest uh, problem for me is reconstructing the parties because I don't see us going back to a federation of local party machines. Uh, and in the new class war, I suggest micro-democracy as a kind of alternative because what made the local party machines important was not that they were parties, but that they were local. That is, your neighborhood mm -hmm. 
was the training ground for politicians. And I think there are a great number of things in the UK and the US, which really could be done at a neighborhood ward level of 50,000 people or less, which don't have to be done at a metropolitan planning level. There's some Mm -hmm. things like infrastructure that are necessary, but you know, like parks and things like that, why can't the neighborhood decide that instead of a bunch of college credentialed bureaucrats in some downtown office? So I guess I'm optimistic in the sense that I think the parties of the center right will eventually adapt to their new working class constituencies I'm less optimistic that they will undertake the kind of structural reforms that you really need to incorporate working class representatives in decision making in the government and the economy and the culture. Michael, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 